Spice Podcast. I'm your host, Aram Layton, and I am joined by Andre Fernandez, the Marlins beat writer for The Athletic. Also does a little Dolphins coverage, but we're going to be focusing on the Marlins today. Uh, thank you for joining me, Andre. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. So obviously, it's been a pretty crazy couple weeks for, for the offseason with the Marlins. Not many personnel moves yet, but we have a new logo. We have new jerseys. We have an almost inevitable Rio Muto trade now. And obviously, the Rio Live draft just happened. A lot of marketing changes with the Marlins, something we haven't seen before. Uh, Arizona Fall League, you have Yamamoto pitching in the championship game. I mean, a lot of things happening around the Marlins organization. It's a pretty exciting time to be following them. In terms of the logo and jerseys, of course, we're going to start there. Uh, it's been a pretty crazy story. Obviously, you were following it. Mixed reviews on the jerseys, that's all subjective to me. But the one thing that really did stick out to me was how they built up the suspense, how they marketed the jerseys and logo, and how they really wanted to appeal to Miami. What was your takeaway from how they handled that entire reveal and everything that Jeter and co. kind of put together in that whole reveal? Yeah, I mean, that that was the part that stood out to me, too, is that, um, you know, it's this is more than just, you know, changing the look of the team superficially in terms of a jersey, in terms of a logo. I mean, to me, that's a lot of that, as we know, is putting the, their stamp on this franchise and kind of separating from the past and, and the not too pretty past that the teams had in recent years overall. But um, it goes beyond that. It really goes. I, I like the fact that they're trying to identify with their city. They're really, to me, what impressed me even more was what they did, not just, you know, not just the video, not just the way that they announced it, but what they did on Friday really, you know, showed me something because in the past, I I can't speak the entire 25 year history of the team. I'm sure, you know, there's been times where they've done things in the community, where they've done some charitable things, where they, you know, tried to appeal to their fan base. But to go out there, I think to this extent, what this, what this group is doing right now is pretty impressive to see. You know, to go basically like door to door, different businesses in Miami really show up and really talk to fans, you know, the way they did. They went to restaurants, they went to police stations, they went to fire stations, car dealerships, you name it. They were all over the place. They did some of that in Fort Lauderdale, too. And, you know, Mike Hill went to the AutoNation store there. They made an appearance there. They, you know, a lot of different things where they really are reaching out to the community. And a lot of it came from the Demolo campaign earlier in the year where they, I mean, look, when they when they launched that, this was at a point where they were taking a lot of criticism for these trades and it would have been very easy to just stay quiet and kind of just stay the course. And, you know, hey, we, we're doing what we're doing because we believe in it. But no, they wanted to hear back from the fans. They wanted to get gauge interest, not just in that, but also, you know, what they feel is going on with the ballpark. They wanted to get critiques on what they've liked, what they've not liked, things that they can do to do better. So in that sense, it, it's commendable that they've been trying to do these things. I mean. For the most part, I've seen, you know, if I were to measure it, like give it a percentage, I'd say maybe more than half that I've seen that have liked the uniforms or that maybe it's grown on them as they've had more chance to kind of digest it, to see the players wearing it, that sort of thing. But of course, you know, that's subjective, like you said. To me, the interesting part is they made this whole push to the Hispanic market, which is fine because that's a big part of their core audience. But, you know, even Chip Bowers was asked, you know, what about what what do you guys have planned for, you know, other cultures, other backgrounds, you know, other ethnicities, not just the Latin American scene. And that's an interesting thing that I think we're going to, you know, going forward, I want to see how the Marlins, because some people I've seen on social media that have been like, hey, why not us or why are you guys only going to them? So it's kind of created a little bit of a of, of an interesting, you know, back and forth there where I wonder how they're going to handle you know, from a from a cultural perspective, being more inclusive and also going beyond the general Miami area, going into Broward a little bit, going into Palm Beach, which I suspect they're going to start to do even more as we get closer to spring training. I mean, after all, you know, their their home base is in Jupiter for the spring. They've got their minor league, their prospects, you know, coming through there. You know, it'd be good, obviously, to try to get that whole area as much as possible to, you know, to generate some excitement about the team. Well, you mentioned appealing to the Latin community, something that's been very important to the Marlins marketing strategy. But another thing that's that's been pretty interesting to see Jeter's approach is one of the first things he said in, in that initial town hall, if you remember a while back, that was a, almost a circus for lack of a better word. But it, it was pretty crazy. But it was also Jeter's first opportunity to, to address the season ticket holders, almost show his face a little bit. 
But one of the things that he said that stuck out to me when I was at that event was he pointed out the World Baseball Classic. That I believe it was Puerto Rico versus the Dominican Republic. And it was mm-hmm. sold out, absolutely electric atmosphere. And I can promise you that all of those fans did not come over from their homes in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. Most of them are probably living in the area and came to see right. some baseball. And so what Jeter was pointing out is that the market is there. The, the market is there for baseball. You just have to put out a good product. And I think they're trying to appeal to that. But you do bring up a good point that a, a lot of season ticket holders and a lot of fans come from Broward County and Palm Beach County, and they make the trek down. And that's something that the Marlins need to figure out and how they're going to, going to address that. But first and foremost, it has seemed like they are trying to become Miami's team. And whether people think that they can actually do that or not, it, it, the effort is what really matters. And the other thing is they've been painting murals all over the city. And I noticed mm-hmm. the other day you had tweeted out that you had caught one almost inadvertently, if I'm not mistaken, just driving down the road. What have you seen from those? Is that kind of just something that they're trying to throw the logo out around and just have people almost have no choice but to stumble upon it and think about the Marlins? Well, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, in a way, if you come across that, it you know, it, it does. Once you look at it, you identify it with the Marlins. But it's also their way of, again, it's the whole part of identifying with their city. I mean, when you go around Miami, whether, you know, you might see something like that in Wynwood or in Little Havana, you've seen like the art on the walls. That's Things that are things that are seen around the city, you know, that, you know, art is a big thing down here, you know, in this community. And I think to kind of that's another interesting tactic that they've done to to get these artists to basically promote the Marlins through that that medium, through that way. You know, and and it's an even it's an even more creative way to get out there and kind of show, you know, show people, you know, hey, we're trying to be the city's team, like you were saying before. You know, and that's the part to me that it's been impressive because it wasn't just that one. That one I caught like a few blocks away from my house. But I remember the ninth of the reveal when when Jeter had his his event at the or the team's event there at, um, you know, for Ocean Drive magazine. And I remember driving back from it and the bottom of the the overpass there was lit up in the in the new colors. There was a mural on this side of the street. There was a billboard as soon as I got on the highway. Then as I kept going the next day. You go to, you, you pass by like the US one, you know, where it meets up with I 95, and all of a sudden a bunch of those posters hanging from the light poles saying, you know, opening day, March 28th. So they're, they're trying to generate, you know, the hype and the enthusiasm surrounding the team. And that's something that, like I said before, maybe not, maybe this has been done in steps before, like by, you know, by the previous regime or previous regimes, but not to, to not to this intensity. Like this is something where in the last two weeks, the Marlins are in the consciousness of, of Miami right now. Like they're out there, they're being talked about. And that's the thing that I feel like for a long time, you know, other than spots here and there, they're not really in the news cycles, you know, fr- like right front and center, the way the Heat are, the way the Dolphins are, the way the Canes are. And there's been different reasons for that. But this is something that's generated that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I understand people are waiting for the on-field product to catch up. And that'll come with time. But for right now, this is actually, this is, there's nothing, there's nothing to lose here for them. There's a lot to gain by, by setting up this as a foundation for future success for them. Well, you mentioned the on-field product being something that the fans are waiting for, but in general, this is probably one of the worst times in Miami sports that we've seen in a long time. Just when you look at almost every single sport across the board, and if the Marlins are able to grab a hold of success in the next few years, obviously they're still pretty far off mm-hmm. from being in contention. But it's almost up for grabs. Miami's team, as I put up air quotes, even though nobody can see them, <laughs> but <laughs> it's pretty much it's it's up for grabs. I mean, the Dolphins yeah. are miserable. The Heat are in a tough tough spot. The Panthers look pretty good, and that's probably the only team you can make a case for. But you even look at the Hurricanes, a lot. most of the Hurricane fans didn't even go to Miami, which is like myself. I just grew up on Miami Hurricanes football. Uh, that's almost like an extra professional team down here, but they're all struggling. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really good opportunity for the Marlins in the next couple of years to try and grab a hold of that. And I think it's something that Chip Bowers and Derek Jeter have noticed, and it's something that they're really pushing hard for now. But at the end of the day, the on-field product is what matters. And you mentioned being in the news cycles as well. A negative news cycle that's probably going to be going around now is the impending Rio Muto trade. While a lot of people, 
lot of the hardcore fans and a lot of people that really understand what goes into a rebuild know that a real Muto trade may be necessary and it will bring in a hefty return and a franchise altering return. You're mm-hmm. always going to have those fans that hate to see their superstars go. And that's something that they're going to have to deal with, but it's something that may be a necessity. What is your latest on the Rio Muto trade? Do you think a trade is inevitable? And if so, what's the best scenario for the Marlins? What's the best trade partner, best team that could get them the prospects that they need? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Recently, I know when the, when when his agent made the comments that he did, you know, I was told the Marlins haven't given up on it, which, you know, later they even came up, come out and said, we're still would love to sign him. They're still pursuing that. But at this point, I think they're at an impasse because to me, I wonder if they're trying to do some more, somewhat more of a, you know, a deal that would pay him, but maybe not for so many years, which kind of makes sense in the in the sense of it's risky to give a catcher a, a very long term deal. I understand right now he's probably he he's put up the numbers to back up that he's the best active catcher in the game right now, but where's he going to be five years from now, six years from now? And that's the kind of deal they're hoping for. They're hoping he gets paid, you know, Posey-like money, that that's sort of a contract. And I think they're at an impasse right now that will end up inevitably resulting in a trade. And right now, I mean, you know, the tempting, the, the interesting part is the Nationals don't look like they're involved anymore because of the Suzuki acquisition that they just made. You know, the Braves keep getting talked about. Obviously, they've got a ton of pitching that's that's there in the, you know, high in their system that, they may or may not be willing to part with, you know, I've heard that guys like Tucson or Soroka may not be, you know, are guys that they, the Braves would want to hang on to because they're hoping their rotation pieces in the next year or so. But I mean, you look at the Astros and Kyle Tucker's there. I mean, Forrest Whitley's there. It just depends if Houston's willing to part with someone like that to get JT. It would definitely make sense for them. I mean, a team that, you know, won it all, got close again this year. I mean, they're right there in the championship mix and they're going to have to, they're going to have to make some moves soon to stay in that championship mix. They don't want to fall out and become, you know, the Royals. They want to stay consistently there. They don't, they don't want their window to close rapidly in the next couple of years. So that's one for sure. Another one I've seen, you know, obviously we've heard about the Dodgers and Scrundald's now a free agent, you know, that could be a, a potential. I like the fact that they have those catchers in their system, Kyber Ruiz, but again, it comes down to what are the Dodgers willing to part with there? Obviously, the Marlins would love to have a catcher like that, considering right now if JT goes, you know, Chad Wallach's the only other catcher they've got, you know, lined up there right now. They, they, they need to get someone in there. They need to get a couple people in there, at least as a stopgap. You know, maybe they go after, you know, maybe try to bring back a Brian Holiday. You know, Mathis just signed. Jeff Mathis just signed with the Rangers. You know, they've got to put something there because obviously Will Banfield is a guy that looks really good for the future, but he's still three years away minimum. You know, so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of return they can get and what spots they can shore up through this trade, you know, whether it's pitching. But to me, the bottom line, and I've gone too long on this, the bottom line to me is they have to land in this trade. They have to land that Acuna, that Soto, that Robles. They're not going to get Robles now probably because the Nationals won't trade with them. But talking just in the terms of that level of elite prospect, because that's what they haven't done yet. They've built a good foundation for the farm system. They've added depth, but they still haven't landed that guy that really you look at and say, wow, this is a heck of a, at least not a guy that's yet proven himself to be there. They have a few in the system that have potential, but not a guy that you immediately, when you acquire him, you know, okay, this guy's a stud. This guy's going to be on the field right away. And this is the guy that could be one of the game changers that could take us to to another level. Well, I love that you made that point because that's one of my common criticisms of the Marlins rebuild so far is that, yes, those trades were necessary. And, yes, they've done an amazing job of taking a farm system that was at the basement of the league and now is probably in the upper tier, top third in in the league, depending on how you look at it. But there isn't that defining prospect, as you mentioned. And, the other thing is that as you look at the prospects now, it's hard to see a future with those prospects in which a team is now developed into a competitive team down the road where you think that they can actually make a run at a title. There's just they don't have the pieces there yet. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think a real Muto trade may be necessary. Uh, you like those guys like Monty Harrison. You like some of those. You, I still A lot of people still have hope in Brinson as as I do myself, but those aren't franchise altering type of guys I think you need to add a couple more of those guys like you mentioned but the thing with Houston is they're in a little bit of a crossroads in my opinion where they could go after that catcher but 
in a year or two, you have Springer up for a new contract. Altuve will probably be up for a new contract. Correa, Bregman, they can't keep all of those guys. And eventually one of those guys is going to have to go. And that's where Tucker probably fills in for Springer or one of those guys. And they might end up wanting to hold on to those prospects, knowing that that's coming ahead. And the Marlins trade partner could be one of those teams that hasn't even been named yet. But you mentioned the Dodgers. I really like the Dodgers as a potential option for them because they do have such a deep farm system and are in such a win-now mode. Mm -hmm. But going into some of the prospects, Monty Harrison, as I just mentioned before, probably the Marlins' best prospect in their organization besides uh, Victor Victor Mesa, who was just added. We haven't really seen him play professional baseball yet, but he's already at the top of a lot of top prospect lists for the for the Fitch. But Harrison looked like a different player in the Arizona Fall League, totally overhauled his approach, basically eliminated that leg kick, mm-hmm. had a two-leg approach. The power numbers took a hit a little bit, but to be honest, I think that was almost the goal. Uh, get rid of that swing and miss, all or nothing type of approach and have more of a drive it all over the field hit for average because the power will come later. What did you see from Harrison other than what I just said? Because that's what I loved. But do you think that's going to translate into this season or is that just a little bit of an Arizona Fall League streak? Do you think it was a flash in the pan or is this something that might be a new player that we're seeing out here? Well, I mean, I don't think it's uh, obviously there's something to it. I mean, especially when you make sort of when you make adjustments like that. You know, yeah, the power numbers were down, but it's a lot easier for that to develop with time and with experience and and really, uh, you know, cutting down on those strikeouts. I mean, that was alarming to see, you know, I mean, we know how talented potentially he is, but to, to see the way he was striking out in double A this year, it was a little worrisome for a moment there. And, you know, you want you give him the benefit of the doubt because he's one of these guys that was a multi-sport guy and those guys take a little longer to develop, as we know. But, I mean, I think he can carry this over in terms of at least he's found something that he needs to stick to and just continue to move from there, continue to develop. Whether he, you know, let's say he starts again in double A or triple A this year to start the season, you know, go from there, apply it against these pitchers. You know, he's going to face tougher pitching than last year, you know, and if he starts to produce, this is a guy that we know can, you know, has the the physical tools and 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 the defensive skills, you know, base running and so forth that can translate to the major league level if the bat catches up. And, you know, the Marlins, if he's a productive hitter, whether whether he starts out and let's say he's a 10-homer guy initially, something like that, I think the Marlins can live with it as long as that's something that progressively develops if he's producing and it's not someone that's struggling right away and, and, and just looks bad and maybe goes through a season the way Brinson did now. And I'm with you. I think, I think Brinson is due for a breakout. I really I really think he's going to be a lot. I don't know how much of a breakout, but I don't think he's going to be what we saw in 2018. You know, for their sake, I hope so, because that's another, you know, I like Brinson a lot, and I really think this would be huge for, not just for, obviously, for him and to get a good return from the trade, but there's even, like, the off-the-field perk there. You know, a hometown guy like that is really a guy that you that can be an identifiable player for the franchise, especially in Miami with everything they're doing. So if he can become... You know, even a solid player that has a, a, a good career down here, it, it, on so many levels, that just benefits them, you know, in, in so many ways. So it'd be great to see what they can do. And he's definitely a marketable guy, as you said. I mean, he seems so likable. The community has really embraced him. And a lot of the fans that were watching him play this past season wanted him to do well just so badly because you can just see how badly he wants to do well. He's a hard worker. But people forget how young he is. I mean, this was his first full season in pro ball. I mean, in, in, in the MLB, rather. He actually dominated in the minor leagues for most of his career down there. And he seems poised for a breakout, like you said. And, and I think that's something that the Marlins are really hoping for. You mentioned that return on the Yelich trade. Of course, watching him win MVP is difficult for a lot of Marlins fans. Uh, knowing that you gave up pack-to-back MVPs, how many times are we going to hear that uh, right. over and over again, right? Yeah. But the Marlins return, uh, at the time, you look back, there's so many people that were saying that the Brewers gave up too much. Uh, in, in hindsight, obviously, it still looks like a good trade. It's too early to tell on the Marlins end. But when we were off the air, you, you had mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about how this is a huge year to gauge the return for the Marlins and that you might be working on a piece for that coming up in the future. So if you want to tease that a little bit, but we also mentioned, we need to mention Yamamoto pitching in the Arizona Fall League championship game. 
almost a throw-in in that Yelich deal and has now looked like one of the m- most successful pieces so far early on. Uh, what do you think about this next upcoming season as how important it is to gauge this deal, this Yelich deal with the Brewers? Well, I think it's huge. I mean, that's that's why I, that's why I, what I meant before about Brinson is that you know this is the year. Last year, nobody wanted to see him struggle as as much as he did, but he did a lot of work with the coaches behind the scenes in ter- in sort of developing just developing consistency with his swing, his approach, everything that a lot of people didn't realize. And a lot of people criticized the Marlins. Why are you keeping him up? Why are you not sending him back down? Why are you not? He tore it up down there. So the bottom line is they wanted him to see major league level pitching. And he faced a lot of high quality starters last year, struggled against some, showed flashes against others. And I think that's valuable experience. So this is where we, this is where I think, I mean, I'm not going to say it, it all hinges on 2019, but this is where we start to see if Lewis Brinson can be a productive major league player. This is where we start to see if Monte Harrison who's a step behind that because his next step is to break through and, and get into the majors. But can he do that or does he have to wait even longer or should we worry? Can he translate what he did in the AFL to, to this? Now, has he found something with his approach that's going to make him another guy to follow in that line behind Brinson? Isan Diaz. Doesn't look like he could be a major superstar like that, but he could be a second baseman. I mean, if he comes up, we, we talk, we've talked about Starling Castro in, uh, before. We don't know if he's going to be here beyond midseason, beyond the trade deadline this year. He's in the final year of his contract. So that's a spot at second base that could be his if he continues to progress. So there's a guy right there. And then you talk about Yamamoto, of course, the, the, almost you know the forgotten guy in the trade. If he gives them any kind of production, whether it's in the rotation or maybe – out of the bullpen, I mean, talk about four players right there giving you some sort of production. Let's say it's not all four. Let's say even if it's two or three that end up being key pieces for you. Yes, you gave up Yelich. Yes, he won an MVP. Yelich is going to have a good career. I don't know if he's going to win how many more, if any, MVPs he may win, but he is going to be a good, he's going to have a great solid career. But you know what? If you get three starters, let's say, out of it, something like that, now you're talking. I mean, that's that's pretty good. You got a pretty good return and a good, you know, addition to your core for years to come as you go forward and as you continue to build around that. And that's that's a really refreshing point to hear you make because that's something that I've been saying time and time again. But of course, fans want instant gratification. They have short memories and they don't look far ahead. They're they're more caught in the moment. And of course, in the moment, you have very little to show on the Marlins MLB roster. And meanwhile. Christian Yelich had an absolutely dominating season for the Brewers. So, of course, it's a little frustrating as a Marlins fan. But the point you're making is, is the whole pre- – like, it's what a rebuild is predicated on is is trading some of those major guys for more potential that spread spreads out more, right? So, yeah. I mean, Eisen Diaz, yeah, he's not going to be a superstar. But he's a good glove at second base with some power that could get into the 15 to 20 range mm-hmm. and walks at, at a phenomenal clip is just, he's got to cut the strikeouts down. Uh, he's obviously the Marlins best bet at second base right now in the entire organization. So there's one potential starter, like you mentioned. And then of course, Yamamoto keeps up what he's doing and Brinson and, and Harrison paired with Mesa, that could be the most athletic outfield in the national league. I mean, it'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find a more athletic outfield than that in the next couple of years, if that actually comes to fruition. Right. So you can see the plan starting to manifest itself in front of our eyes. It's just whether all of those guys are going to work out in the way that the Marlins hope. And that's kind of, that's the difficult part of a rebuild. And that's why you have to maximize your prospects. And that's why I think a real Muto trade may be ultimately what is needed to bolster this organization. Mm-hmm. But we keep throwing out names and potential lineups and stuff like that. Outside of the Brewers trade, just in general, what do you think the Marlins rotation could look like next year? There's so many candidates. I think you can make a case for eight guys, if not more, uh, to potentially have a shot to crack that rotation. Uh, right now, who are your early favorites? Obviously, it's very early. Yeah. But who do you like to have a good a good shot to crack that five-man rotation? Well, I, I love the fact that this is probably the most uh, just, you know, just looking at it, going going in this early where – I've actually really been really excited to see what they can come up with with their rotation because of, because of all those young options. 
I mean, you got to start with, I mean, we know Wei and Chen on the con- contractually, you'd figure barring an injury or barring any sort of setback, he will be there. So that's one. But beyond that, when you talk about the young guys, Sandy Alcantara has got to be there. You know, that, that he's the guy who made the big splash last year. They finally made his debut. A guy you hope can build off the, you know, what he did last year and maybe control the, you know, low, you know, not get into the situation where he was walking a lot of guys like we saw at times toward the end of the season and just keep building off of that. You got the interesting part's going to be you have a couple guys coming off injuries. I mean, Pablo Lopez did really well. It's not, not, a, not anything serious. So it should be, you know, this could be a year where he builds off of that. We saw how well he can pitch, how well the pitch arsenal that he has is effective for him. Um, Caleb Smith is an interesting one because that was a little more of an in, of, of an injury, you know, that that really took him out of the shoulder. You know, let's see how he bounces back from that. You know, what you know, we, his spin rate's been well documented. How much, you know, that has helped him be effective. You know, but I'm looking at those three guys as being serious contenders. You know, for sure, you've got you know Trevor Richards, obviously, with the changeup he possesses. If he can keep adding. To you know, around that and 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 develop his pitches around that, he's going to be even more effective. He was a heck of a story last year. You know, the one to me that's going to be interesting what they do with is Straley, because you know he's he's arbitration eligible, but you know maybe they keep him, maybe they don't, maybe they offer him up as a trade now over the next month as a you know a potential trade piece. You know, let the thing is they have options, so it's going to be interesting to see does he stay there. And then again, we're looking at it as them having eight, nine options. Eliezer Hernandez is another guy who's going to be in that mix. You know, there's a lot of names floating around, but we know this every year it happens. You go into spring training and someone's going to have a setback. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to pitch poorly and decisions will be made. So you wonder how much the Marlins will try to keep as many as possible going in the spring just to have that depth in case things happen, you know, unforeseen factors and whatnot. But those are definitely guys – and I hope I didn't forget anybody. I'm trying to remember if that, if I missed any name there from from this past season that really stood out. I hope I didn't, but did I, you, you probably can't tell me. So uh, those are those are mainly a lot of the young options that I'm excited to see going into 2019 that can build off this year. Well, the one thing that I love that you said is that they have options. When's the last time we've said that about the Marlins pitching rotation? Right. Right. Exactly. Not, yeah. not retreads or not guys that, you know, have, you know, basically uh, topped out and you don't have any more of a ceiling. Like almost everybody left, you know, is guys that you're excited because they still have upside. And that's the thing where it's not like we're dealing with Jeff Brigham's here where we have guys that we're looking at guys that can really potentially be mainstays in the rotation for, for a long time. And, Another guy that I, I am very intrigued to see how much the Marlins try and push him through the ranks is Nick Nider. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's looked absolutely phenomenal, uh, despite the fact that a lot of scouts don't like his he the fact that he doesn't have plus plus stuff. Uh, but at the end of the day, you're getting major league or professional hitters out. And I don't think it really matters what your spin rate is or this or that. If you if you can continually get guys out, then that's the name of the game, and it's going to be fascinating to see if he he gets that spring training invite and seeing how he performs against some of those major league hitters and seeing if that low 90s fastball with the lack of really really sharp stuff affects him or if he can continue to spot up and and continue to get outs but like you mentioned Lopez looked really good uh he almost underscouted in the way where uh he, they didn't really account for his fastball getting up into the mid to almost upper 90s, we saw him reach 96, 97 at times. Mm-hmm. Some games where he was scouted at 92 to 93. Um, Caleb Smith was another guy that no one was really high on, but looked phenomenal when he pitched. But yeah. uh, as, as a man who got labrum surgery himself, and I'm pretty sure that's what Caleb Smith had done with his shoulder, uh, there's a low success rate uh, with that in the major leagues. It's probably the last surgery you want to have as a pitcher. Right. Uh, so, I mean, yeah. we saw what it did to Anderson Alvarez. Right. Um, so that's why, course, that, that's, why, that's why I was worried about him. And I, that's why I said, like, if there's one guy that I want to see how he bounces back, it's him. And and and, and shame on me for not mentioning Jose Ureña. I mean, of that's, course. that's a, that you always forget because he's not a rookie anymore. But, I mean, he saved his season at the end. I mean, he saved, not only saved his season. I mean, he may have even saved his career, really, because he was he was really struggling. And with the year he had going into September to come out blazing like that and win five games and the stuff he showed, the velocity, you know, you know, the command, the movement, everything, the, everything clicked for him in September. So 
he was probably obviously he's probably not going to be that good probably starting the season. But if he can continue again, a guy that if that translates over to 2019, he'll probably be right there at the top of the rotation, if not the opening day starter again. And that's something that probably would have been laughed at in in August when we're seeing him, you know, three and twelve or whatever his record was, and beaning Acuna and everything that was happening with him. Well, that's the absolutely amazing thing was just he looked like two different pitchers. It was a Jekyll and Hyde story there where in the first half, two and nine with a four, three, nine ERA gave up almost a hit in inning and uh, was not striking anybody out. I mean, he typically doesn't strike out a ton of guys, but in the second half, seven and three with a three, three, one ERA and striking out about a batter an inning, yeah. uh, just under a batter an inning. I mean, that's, that's night and day. Yeah. Um, that's something that you really hope he can build off of, but he's the type of guy that's just hot and cold and you don't know what you're going to get. But at the very least, the Marlins could turn him into a trade ship and uh, he could be a back of the rotation guy for a team that is trying to contend. I mean, the stuff is indisputable, that upper 90s fastball. He's got good off-speed pitches, but it's what's kind of peculiar about him is a guy with his type of stuff always struggling to rack up the strikeouts. And that's something that's always kind of been a challenge for him in his career. but. The cool thing about the Marlins is that they have young pitchers that we really don't know how they're going to respond next year. And that's kind of exciting to an extent where we're yeah. getting away from the Dan Straley's and the, some of these other guys where we know what we're going to get constantly. You know, you know what you're going to see. And it's kind of a wait and see game where it could be stressful, but it could be really, really refreshing to see for this Marlins team. And Sandy, Sandy Alcantara, after getting sent back down, he looked phenomenal coming back up in those last few starts of the season to finish things out. And he showed that refined control. Uh, another thing that we wanted to, I wanted to talk about a little bit is uh, the lineup, right? I mean, the Marlins, as of now, don't really have a first baseman unless you want to pencil in Peter O'Brien there for now, who did look really good in the end of the season. Um, Sterling Castro will start the season at second base, had a pretty good year, uh, but he's subpar defensively. Uh, not going to bring you much power at the plate, uh, but he, he's he's a startable player, of course, and, and probably a trade chip at some point in the season, almost inevitably a trade chip. Marlins still don't really have a long-term shortstop plan, and that's something that I really have been hoping that they will go after in a potential trade down the road. Third base is obviously locked up, uh, even if, if Prado's there for now. Brian Anderson will probably end up anchoring third base in, in the future with the outfield pretty crowded in terms of prospects. But uh, what do you expect position-wise? Any big shakeups around the diamond besides the obvious Real Muto potential trade? And uh, any potential shakeups you could see? Any new guys potentially getting an opportunity there? Uh, what do you What do you think could happen with that lineup? Well, I mean, that's where I think it's going to be interesting to see um, what they do with Brian Anderson because, like I said, I mean, right now. He did so well in right field, but they haven't given up on him being the third baseman. Obviously, Prado's a big question mark if he's going to be able to play. He's just been so injury prone, unfortunately. You know, do they, or if he's there, do they start out with Brian Anderson still in right field, keep Prado there for now? It would make sense since, uh, you know, especially if guys aren't ready to come up yet or if they don't make, let's say they don't make a trade for any sort of, you know, elite star outfield prospect or anything like that. So first base, yeah, Peter O'Brien at least earned a, earned a chance so far. But again, the question mark with him is, again, it was it was a great finish to the season. But we like Peter. I like Peter a lot, but we've seen his career has been back and forth, jumping around, never really been able to, to make it at the major league level. Does that change here? This will this year will probably tell. We'll probably find out maybe even in spring. We don't know yet what Cooper can do. We don't know, you know, as far as that goes, he's been hurt so much that they haven't really seen that. They were hoping he'd come back mid-season, then he got hurt again. So we've seen that story develop. A lot of their, like you said, their shortstops, I mean, it's almost like you wish you wish Devers and Osiris were ready now, but unfortunately not yet. So that's still got a little ways to go. But you could see a jump from JT Riddle in terms of production. I mean, you know, he hasn't been, he hasn't been the same since the injury. So it's almost like he lost two years. But at the end of last season, you started to see him incorporate a little more launch angle the swing was getting better, starting to drive the ball a little bit more. So he, we talked a, a couple times during the season, and, and he talked about getting his strength back, adding adding some of that that he's been missing since he had the surgery. 
So he could, he could, you could suddenly see a spike with him where if he wins that starting shortstop job, that stabilizes that spot a little bit. And then you can play around with what you do with, with, with Miguel at the other spots. You can move him possibly around the infield if he had to. Obviously, you know, use him. They want to, they want to use one guy more predominantly at shortstop. We don't, we heard that from, from Mattingly. So those are guys right there. I mean, as far as signing, you know, the, you talked about the money before, they're going to have a little bit of wiggle room to potentially go after, you know, maybe a veteran bat, maybe a lefty veteran bat. Maybe they go after, you know, a Matt Adams type that they could put for a year at first base. And then that brings some power because this lineup lacks so much in just driving runs and, 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 and slugging. You know, they were the worst in every, in every sort of category, slugging, run production. So they need something because – with the way it's constructed right now going into the season, I wouldn't be surprised if, again, they have a slow start offensively and are going to have to rely on those young arms to keep them in games you know, for a while until maybe some of these moves begin to happen or maybe see, see a prospect ready to go, that sort of thing. But you know, that's why overall in 2019, you know, people need to realize this is just step two. It's still, they're still rebuilding. I wouldn't expect a, a huge jump yet in year two of, the, uh, of their process here. And, and, that's why the window to me doesn't start till at least 2020, maybe even 2021, depending. And if they trade JT, obviously that's again another big hit to the offense. And they don't, as of right now, they don't have anybody that they could put there a catcher that you look at and say, okay, at least this is. I mean, that's that's going to be interesting to see how they plug that for for the immediate future. Absolutely, and that's something that uh, there's not much of a market for right now, or, or there's not much of a market. Uh, with catchers, there's not very many guys that the Marlins could go sign in free agency. You named a few, but mostly are career backup guys, uh, which may end up being the result that the Marlins have to settle with is plugging in one of those career backup guys. But at this point, I don't think they really care as long as it buys more time for Will Banfield to slowly improve and uh, hopefully get up to the bigs at some point because his glove should carry him there despite the fact that whether he could hit or not, but I do see some potential in his bat. And he actually did come on the podcast a while back right after the draft. And he uh, seemed like a really sharp, really, really good young kid and a hard worker and mm-hmm. a guy that definitely is going to get every shot to uh, to try and make it to the big leagues here and a guy that the Marlins are really excited about. Um, but the pick almost signaled a little uncertainty about the future of Rio Muto, in my opinion, because they picked – two catchers in the first four rounds with also taking Nick Fortes. Uh, so I think that doesn't mean anything. You don't want to overlook into stuff like that, but it, it definitely implied a little bit of uncertainty with the future of Real Muto. Right. And we could go all day long, especially with what the agent said and whether that's posturing for an extension or whether he really does want to be out of there. Uh, it's, it's all semantics and it's all a game and that's something that's really hard it makes, I know it makes your job difficult because all the fans are begging for answers, but uh, even you guys, it's pretty hard to find the answers sometimes, and uh, that's something that will be a developing story as we go forward. But something I really wanted to make sure I, I got you for and got you an opportunity for to get your answers on is we recently had the, uh, the awards come out, the MVP, the Silver Sluggers, the Cy Young, the Rookie of the Year, and personally I thought they did a really good job um, with the major awards, the MVP, obviously in both leagues, I think they got totally right with Mookie and Yelich. Uh, the Cy Youngs were a pretty interesting uh, situation this year where you have a 10-win DeGrom and you have uh, Blake Snell who was injured, um, but his numbers precede him, himself there. Um, were there any guys that you thought got snubbed a little bit? Were there any awards you think they got wrong? And uh, what was your take on some of those awards that were given out so far? Well, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of it really came out the way it should have been. I mean, you know, Yellen earned it. I mean, I, everything he did this year, you know, all the numbers, the different types of numbers he put up and just to carry that team, you know, into the playoffs as far as they did. I mean, you know, obviously the voting happens before the postseason, so we didn't, we didn't know how well they were going to do. But if you just look at the drastic improvement, in so many areas. I mean, I think they got it right. Mookie was a no-brainer. I mean, he was so good this year. He was even better than than Trout in many ways, and when, which is like, which is obviously really hard to do over a future Hall of Famer like that. You know, the Cy Young. I think you know wins are overrated at this point to a degree when it comes to when it comes to stats in terms of pitching wins. 
you know, the way obviously we've seen how usage of pitching is changing and continues to change. Guys are going, you know, fewer innings, starters are going less. You know, we've seen the opener develop this year, you know, with a lot of teams. But DeGrom was on, you know, a bad Mets team that wasn't giving him a lot of run support and which which let which fed into that and was still dominant. I mean, even late in the year when, you know, when it was already his, you know, 30th start or whatnot, like he was, he was really dominant. And, and I think that's what I think a lot of people caught the attention. I mean, this was, this was a guy who was, you know, the sub two ERA and doing with the things that he was doing. And so I think that they were on, the, they hit that one on the nose and it was good to see Snell get rewarded as well. I mean, you know, some people were complaining about maybe Verlander deserved it. You know, but I, I, I could see I could see there the one the one that I got to vote for, which my guy didn't get it. I voted for Craig Council for manager of the year, um, you know, and not not to take anything away from Snicker. I think, you know, for Brian Snicker, I think the Braves, obviously, I see why a lot of people voted for him. I see, you know, obviously this year things were a little bit ahead of schedule for the Braves, you know, to win the division and, and do what they did. But, you know, I really like the, the fact that, you know, a, Yes, the Brewers acquired a few players, but Council really did a good job of just bringing everything together and making right, the right decisions down the stretch. And we really saw the Brewers were really, really close to being right there and battling the Red Sox. And they really easily could have won the pennant themselves. So that was the – maybe not a snub, but it, it was the one that I, that I disagreed with, obviously, by vote there. So, But o- overall, I think the voters did do a pretty good job you know, in, in terms of the major awards. And especially with the rookie of the year, I mean, in almost any other year, uh, even though Brian Anderson fizzled a little bit in the latter half of the season, I think a lot of that had to do with fatigue, never playing 162 games in his entire career, of course, being a career minor leaguer so far to this point. Uh, he uh, seemed to just get tired by the end, and that's something that uh, Don Mattingly said himself. But uh, I think it was almost indisputable that Ronald Acuna was uh, the rookie of the year, especially with what he did. In the latter half of the season, with all of those leadoff mm-hmm. home runs, and all of the power production, but I did see, and it, a lot of it had to do with the fact that just Yankees fans are Yankees fans. But uh, a lot of people were upset with the Otani selection for Rookie of the Year. But it's something that we haven't seen since Babe Ruth. I mean, not not a single right. player since Babe Ruth has made ten pitching appearances and hit twenty home runs in a season. Um, right. So that's something that we've never seen before. And should he, if he didn't have elbow trouble, we're talking about probably an, an even more impressive pitching campaign from Otani. But of course, the Yankees wanted their guy in there, and he, he had a phenomenal season himself. But what did you think of that AL Rookie of the Year voting? And uh, it's kind of a difficult situation because you've never had a two-way guy like that. How do you weigh that out? How important is it that he does both? All of those things that come into account. Yeah, I mean, I think the, you're, you you hit it on the head. I mean, the, the the rarity of something like that. I mean, to have a guy, a pitcher, that that hits that way is, you know, that, that's ridiculous. That hasn't been seen in, you know, like you said, since God, you know, you know, the ancient times of baseball. And you know, that that to me is something that that wanted hands down for him. I mean, I saw the two Yankees guys, you know, both of them, you know, Andujar, you know, Glaber. That they, they really, you know, those guys had amazing seasons. There are two more that are going to be part of this, you know, growth of the Yankees team that's going to keep going. You know, part of that was when Gary Dembo was there. Those guys, they started this whole, you know, you know, not not rebuild per se, but reshaping of the Yankees, turning them back into, you know, World Series contenders. And that's going to keep going. But what Otani, Otani is a special talent to be able to do something like that. And that transcended in terms of baseball just to see, you know, a pitcher doing those things. And you're right. If he doesn't get hurt. It, it would have been pretty special to see how high that could have really gone in terms of the numbers he would have put up, you know, and again, you know, again on a team that in the end really wasn't in the mix and he's still putting, you know, doing something. And, and, and there, there's a guy who his arm gets hurt and he's still productive for them in many ways. I mean, this is going to be, a, this is going to be fun to see once he recovers, if he's still that kind of a player and can continue to do this. Oh, absolutely. And he's probably one of my favorite players to watch in terms of just, his sweet left-handed swing from the plate and just his delivery on the mound, electric stuff. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like there's nothing we've ever seen before, like we've said. Um, but I'm going to put you on the spot right here because, of course, you're not going to come onto this podcast and not be put <laughs> on the spot. Um, you're a few years away from being eligible to vote for the Hall of Fame. And I think this is one of those things that baseball fans, you know, 
they say don't talk about politics at the dinner table. Um, I don't know if I would talk about the Hall of Fame with baseball fans at the dinner table because you have such different takes on the steroid era. Uh, you have different takes on a lot of different things. And it's, all, it's very arbitrary to people what they think is the threshold for the Hall of Fame. And I've gotten in some heated debates over it. Um, Adrian Belcher retiring today kind of was something that got me on this path because I tweeted out today that I thought he was a first ballot Hall of Famer. I didn't even think that was disputable, to be, to be honest, especially when you crack 3,000 hits. But uh, I guess nowadays everything is disputable. Um, what is your – if you could vote in this in this upcoming Hall of Fame uh, vote right now coming up, uh, I mean – I don't know if I have to jog your memory with some of these guys, but I think you know who's on the ballot. Yeah. <laughs> what would your – who would vote be your you. five guys that you would vote for? Um, and I'm very – the reason why I'm asking this for the most part is whether or not you're going to include those guys that I'm, at, <laughs> that I'm thinking about right now. I think you know who I'm thinking about right now. Uh, but who are your five guys if you had to pick five? I know it's a crowded ballot right now. Uh, wow. Okay, well – I think Rivera's a lock, no doubt. I mean, that's got to—he's got to be in there. I really, I really hope Edgar Martinez gets in. I really do because you know this guy, you know, great. I mean, I understand the whole DH argument and all of that, but I mean, he's he, the career that he put together, just hitting wise. I mean, I think he deserves it. Going back real quick to the, to what you said, Jason Stark had a funny tweet that you said about Beltre. I'm, I'm with you on on that one. I think Beltre is hands down no brainer. He puts. He tweeted today, here's every player with at least 3,166 hits, 477 homers, 819 OPS, and five gold gloves. It's Beltre and Willie Mays. Huh, wow. Fun. <laughs> so, okay. you know, that, that's, that's the thing. I mean, you, you, he's, he's that type of a player. I mean, I'd love to see Roy Halladay get in for how dominant he was. You know, we saw, you know, the perfect game down here, you know, to get the no-hitter in the, in the postseason. I mean, that's another guy for sure that, you know, that has to be in there. Uh, I'm trying to think of who, who are some of the guys that you feel might be slight. I, that's that's at least what did I throw out there to you, like three or four right there? Those are three or four that come, yeah. up, come to mind immediately that I think should be in there. Absolutely not, and I wouldn't dispute any of those. Uh, what, what do you think about potentially Mike Mussina um, now that I'm a seventh year would be his – or sixth year on the ballot? Uh what do you think about a guy like Mike Messina? Would he have your vote? It's interesting because, you know, Moose was part of, you know, he he really he really pitched well, not just in, in New York. And really his career really got to his he pitched to another level with those Yankees teams and really showed something. He's kind of on the borderline for me. I don't know if he'd be an automatic for me right now. But, uh, you know, then you have obviously the guys that have been, you know, involved in a lot of the steroids and the PEDs, you know, like, with, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the thing is like how, how lenient, how forgiving is the committee getting to at this point where, you know, a, a guy who just on baseball merit, you know, if, as far as numbers, you look at Roger Clemens, you look at Barry Bonds, do those guys, are, 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 is baseball at a point where those guys, where they can, you know, be lenient enough to get those guys in? That's a good question. You know, I don't know if it's there yet. I really don't. I think it's maybe it's getting there. Maybe we're progressing to that point, but I'm not, I'm not sold that it's, that it's there yet. Well, you had mentioned you're about six, six or seven years off uh, from potentially voting for the hall of fame, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, so you would have Ro- uh, Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds's final year on the ballot. Wow. Uh, and that no would pressure. Be, yeah, no pressure at all. And they're obviously going to inch up with the last ballot. They were both at about 57%. Mm-hmm. Assuming they'd be about one or two votes away. Right. Well, if they if, had if, your vote, Andre, and if not, are they going to, uh, do they know to blame you for the fact that they are not Hall of Famers? <laughs> well, if it continues the trend and, and, and they keep getting, they keep adding votes the way they're adding, it won't get to me by then. That's for, that, that's what it looks like. But, I mean, it's hard to say from, from it's hard to say at that point. I mean, that's a tough one. I, you know, I, as when before anything came out, I liked, I liked Rocket a lot. I liked Clemens. I love the way he pitched. I grew up watching him pitch, you know, and then, you know, what Bonds did. I mean, yes, you can blame, yes, you can blame some of that for, for, you know, for, for the off the field, but, 
I mean, this guy just knew how to hit. In addition to I, you know, what what the allegations and everything, but this guy knew how to hit. I mean, to a degree that that we've that we've barely seen, you know, in in the history of baseball. So that that to me would be the case for him to get in there. If you look at, you know, don't don't hold against him that the numbers maybe wouldn't be that far off that from what they were. Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, it's more of a morality thing, and that's where it gets really contentious. Right. Where we're debating whether it's the hall of morality and, and all of those things. And that's where we could be going back and forth for probably three hours here. Um, but from what I'm assessing from your answer, it's I'd have to think about it for a while. Oh, yeah. No, that's definitely one. I mean, I'd have to think about it right, you know, not just right now, but even, like you said, six, seven years from now when I do have a vote, it would definitely – like. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that the the issue is is settled by then. <laughs> it's gonna be close, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be waiting for that, and I'll be circling back when the time comes. But I'm I'm really excited for that opportunity for you, and um, I mean your your first vote could potentially be Adrian Beltre, who's one of my f- favorite players of all time. Yeah, uh, and I can Derek tell you that Peter one, he's got he's got my vote hands down. Like I said before, I mean that's even before. You know, I, I, that's why I, I, t- I quoted uh, Stark's tw- Jason Stark's tweet because I really like that he put the evidence out there of how special this guy's career. And I got to see firsthand the famous uh, drag the the on deck circle moment last year when the yeah <laughs> the, the, uh, with the Marlins game. Oh, an all time moment there, yeah. and that's one of the things that he was just a great ambassador for the game and a crazy story where he had to have. A, t- a lot of I don't want to give an arbitrary number that because I don't remember, but a lot of his intestines removed like his first year in the MLB and a really invasive procedure and something that they didn't know how he was going to be able to respond and just a crazy story and I mean just an, a phenomenal guy from what what we've seen and heard and uh, definitely a guy that you root for and it's going to be a shame not seeing him play anymore. Uh, another guy, Joe Mauer, uh, I tweeted mm-hmm. out. That Joe Maurer should be a Hall of Famer, not first ballot, but I said he should be a Hall of Famer. And that mm-hmm. the Minnesota fans took that and ran. I got like four thousand retweets, but I got a fair share of mentions on that one too. Would would Joe Maurer have your vote? Joe Maurer is another one that that's an interesting one. I mean, he's I I wonder I wonder if I probably would lead that way. I'd probably have to study it a little more just to look at numbers and compare guys before saying for sure yes. Mm-hmm. But I definitely, I definitely would consider it because of you know the the type of impact he had with them. Another one I just remembered is um, Andy Pettit's on the borderline too. I mean that's another one similar to Messina. Does he does he get in? I mean I think he gets in eventually, but does he get in now? You know was he good enough to to warrant getting in on on this year's ballot? That's uh, that's not a given. You know I mean and you know there's a lot of good names you know coming this season. I mean Todd Helton's there, another great career, another guy that. You know, definitely should deserve consideration for this year. I think he'll get in eventually as well. You know, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty stacked field to choose from this year. And it's really exciting to have those years coming up. Uh, to wrap up now, I obviously got to circle back to some Marlins talk. Um, with the team that's coming out potentially next year, we don't really know what the team's going to look like. We could see a bunch of September call-ups. Victor Mesa, Victor Victor Mesa could be up. Uh, Harrison could be up, but in a nutshell, does does this team win more or less games than last year's team? Why or why not? Well, where I could see why not is if, like we were saying before, let's say Real Muto gets traded as we're expecting more than likely is going to happen. That's another big hole in the offense. And again, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the pitching to really come through. And then you're going to have to have where, you know how we're all, like we said, we're all excited about the upside. But with that comes inexperience, obviously. So that's going to be that's going to be tough, especially in the early going for this team to avoid, you know, hitting a big losing streak early on or something like that if they don't perform. And you know, but the argument for would be that some of those guys do develop, and some of those guys show some of the adjustments they've made are going to start to pay off. You know, Brinson maybe starts to show up, has the breakout season that Marlins fans are hoping for. Um, you know, you look at if any of these guys come up late in the season or maybe even mid season and also contribute, then you're looking at a team. I mean, if you look at last season, a lot of injuries happened too, where we don't know if Caleb Smith stays in the rotation and keeps pitching the way he's pitching. If that translates to a few more wins, we don't know if the bull, if the bullpen 
if Barraclaw wouldn't have fallen apart the way he did late in the season, really had those issues, they don't lose some of those games. You know, they they have they have guys in the bullpen as well. If Stecken Ryder keeps developing, if Tehran Guerrero, you know, figures out has a little better control than he's had, we know obviously he's got the velocity. You know, some of those factors, the bullpen was atrocious down the stretch. If they're they obviously got have to be better than what they were last year, you would hope. So if all those factors come together, it could be a team that maintains itself a little bit better down the stretch and maybe, you know, hits the 70 win mark or so, or maybe more, maybe 70, 75 wins, something like that. I mean, if a few things went differently, they could have been around the 70 win mark this past season, even with all the, the, the inexperience and the struggles they had. So I don't think they're that far away from that. But again, it, in the grand scheme of things, the window hasn't begun yet. A lot of work still needs to be done. Some moves need to be made. The team, but the team is, you know, they're on that slow, steady path that they're trying to make. I mean, a, a big splash again. I go back to the trade if it happens. I really hope they can get for their sake. I really hope they can land that elite stud prospect that can really be, you know, a franchise changer down the road, or at least a guy that can make a big impact, you know, going forward. And one final question I'll ask you here. Uh, obviously, John, Don Mattingly is under contract for one more season. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have not liked some of the decisions he's made. Some people are in support of him. Uh, maybe the new ownership might want to bring in their own guy. How safe is Don Mattingly's job should the Marlins put up another season similar to the previous season we just saw? I, I don't. If it happens again this pat this year, the same, to the degree that it happened, I don't think he's that safe. I'll be honest with you. I mean. You know, a lot of people criticize the way he managed some of the pitching decisions this past year, you know, with the bullpen, that sort of thing. Maybe leaving guys in too long at times. Uh, we saw a lot of guys really take their lumps. I mean, a lot of a lot of this past season was under the reason of this is mostly about development. Obviously, they're all going to say we want to win. That's fine. Everybody wants to win. But you had this year was mo- mostly about development. Next year is still about development. But they're going to want to see a little more results. They're going to want to see guys progress. They're going to want to see a little more in the in the win loss factor than they saw this season. The guys are going to be held a little more, you know, to a higher standard, to a little higher expectations in those regards. So, if you look at a team that it's expected to be a little more competitive this year, I think, especially in the final year of, the, of his contract, this this franchise, their their front office, they evaluate everything. And Mattingly's right there too. They're going to be evaluating what he's doing. They're going to look at. They're going to take a look, hard, long look at that. And by the end of the season, if they've shown improvement, not just in wins and losses, but in everything, I think that warrants a conversation for them to consider keeping him. And but they really—that's going to be a big decision for them. Do they feel like he's their guy once they're ready to contend in 2020, let's say, or 2021? Is he the guy of the future to lead them into their contention uh, years? We'll see. I mean, this year, again, it, it's not just a big year for Brinson and all the other guys we've mentioned. It's a big year to see if Mattingly really can be that guy. And as we wrap up here, any stories that fans can be ready to look out for, anything that you're covering uh, in the uh, for the Athletic Miami uh, in the coming days, anything that fans can be excited about, any stories that you'll be putting out uh, soon? Well, I mean, I it, it's stuff that still I'm trying to get off the ground little by little, but I, I'm looking to potentially, uh, you know, beyond what I what I had mentioned to you about, you know, looking at the the prospects in the Yellich trade and looking at potential moves. Obviously, the Marlins are are very you know very soon and maybe within within the next few days, I think may announce some of those assistant coach vacancies. So you know, I'm gonna obviously once those become public, we'll we'll delve into that and who these who these guys are. But beyond that, I kind of want to tap into a little bit of the the history of the franchise and and maybe make you know reach out to a few of the former uh, legends of the team. You know, Alex Gonzalez is playing in Venezuela right now, and this is I, I was told this is his last year. He's playing in the winter league over there. This is the last time he's going to play organized baseball. It sounds like so that'd be something interesting. I'm going to try and see if maybe to catch up with him. You know, see what's going on with him, and and maybe reminisce a little about the big home run back in '03. Course. You know, Juan Pierre's on the ballot. I know, obviously, he's not one you talk about, but you know, that's another one. I mean, Juan Pierre, you know, we something that Joe Fersaro and Clark Spencer guys we always talk about, just the the work ethic that he brought to that team back in those days, and and just the kind of player he was. He'd be someone that I'd love to catch up, you know, a little bit with and kind of 
you know, reminisce and, and have his take on what he thinks of just, you know, what the organization's doing now. Does they try to move forward? So, you know, that's some of the things I'm going to look into and obviously, you know, continue to cover this Real Mudo story as it goes forward. You know, looking at 2019, start to kind of, you know, look at look at the, the, the building blocks that they have going the next season. Some of the things like we that we discussed now on, on the podcast, you know, the rotation areas they need to improve, that sort of thing. So going into the winter meetings and, and, and beyond, that's that's the kind of stuff uh, that, that I'm going to try to look into and and provide our readers with. Well, it sounds like some really fun stories. Of course, fans love to be so reminiscent about those amazing times with Gonzalez and Pierre and definitely something that I'll be sure to look out for. So I'm looking forward to that. Andre, thank you so much. Oh, before I let you go, you can follow Andre on Twitter. It's Fernandez Andre in the letter C uh, for all of your Marlins coverage and a little bit of Dolphins coverage, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Mm -hmm. So everything there on both ends of the spectrum and uh, some great coverage for the athletic, uh, very small subscription fee worth every penny. I think it's like the same as a cup of coffee. So <laughs> absolutely worth it. Yep. Uh, thank you so much, Andre, for coming on. I can't thank you enough. Your insight is always appreciated. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Aron. Appreciate it, man. It was good, good talking to you. And, and uh, uh, you know, I'm here whenever you need me. Thanks, man.